When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is John Milas. John Milas is the author of the forthcoming novel, The Militia House, a novel that's been hailed as Stephen King meets Tim O'Brien. He enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps at age 19 and subsequently deployed to the Helmand province of Afghanistan in support of OEF 10.1. He was honorably discharged from active service in 2012. After his discharge, he earned both his BA and MFA in creative writing. As a student, he studied with writers such as Roxane Gay, who we have in common, and who called The Militia House an extraordinary novel about the quiet and not-so-quiet horrors of war. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as a fan of the podcast, really awesome to be here. <laughs> I've been telling I'm my so- friends, I love this podcast. I hope I don't ruin it <laughs> with my oh. appearance. There's no as, as no chance. Yeah. <laughs> There's no chance at all. When um, your publicist, I was just telling you this a little bit earlier, when your publicist sent the novel over and I opened it and I saw the epigraphs, which I'm forcing you to read in just mm-hmm. a mere moment, I knew that I had to have you on. I could not mm-hmm. wait. And um, and then I read the rest of the novel and um, and I'm so glad that we booked you because this this book is incredible. It is terrifying. Thank you. Um, and so visceral and uh yeah i can't wait to talk to you about it yeah i'm thrilled to to be here chatting with you it's super cool to to have this opportunity heck yeah at least (laughs) well now i'm going to force you to read to read to us including the epigraphs i made john read the epigraphs everyone just so you know i would have done it even if i wasn't forced to (laughs) um okay so the I'm going to read a little uh, piece of the the first chapter of, of my novel. Um, there are a couple of epigraphs. Um, the first one is written by a uh, former Marine officer named Jeff Clement. Um, and his epigraph reads, There were no roads in the Helmand province in 2010, except for the Ring Road which didn't go to any of the places we needed to get to. And the second epigraph is by Nicki Minaj, who's a very popular musical artist. Her epigraph reads, let us begin with the bad little specimen. Chapter one, a dog walks up to the guard post with half its face stuck full of porcupine quills. We hear it stumbling in the gravel behind us. Blount gasps when the red light of his moonbeam finds the black and white quills in the side of the dog's face. All I can think in the moment is this. 
I am not a compassionate person. I didn't come here to help. Not people and not dogs. The needles are twice the length of a pencil, clustered hideously across the side of a furry white face. Some of the quills have barely missed an eye. Then a cloud of flies swarms into the guard post. They buzz and whine in our ears. We're used to the flies here, but this is more than usual. Blount raises a gloved hand and swats them out of his face. I hold my M16 steady with one hand and use the other to swat flies away. This is our first night on duty in Kajaki. The dog looks from me to Blount and then back to me as if there's still something we could do to help. But if we weren't getting attacked by bugs right now, it's not like we have a vet hospital here. Fob Z, where we live, doesn't have a clinic for hurt dogs. Most fobs don't. Probably not even Camp Leatherneck or Delaram too. And you don't get medals for saving dogs anyway. People shoot them sometimes, and it's not always out of necessity. The white dog moseys around the guard post and watches us. We must look like idiots as we try to avoid the porcupine quills and swat at the flies buzzing around our helmets. Then for no reason, the dog walks away through the space between the back gate and the wall and out along the dirt road ahead of the guard post and into the dark. Blount clicks off his moonbeam after the dog leaves. The road from the back gate leads all the way to the green zone, but I doubt the dog will walk that far. The green zone is where the Royal Marines go to fight the terrorists. The flies scatter once the dog is gone, and then a pack of jackals begins howling near the old barracks that sits abandoned along the road. I've been watching that old concrete building out there for the moment from the moment we started our shift. I figure it's an old barracks because of all the windows, and it's plain and rectangular, designed for efficiency, a place where enlisted people used to live. Blount and I had only been on post a few minutes before the barracks seemed to materialize from the shadows as if it had not been there a moment sooner. Or at least that's how my eyes tricked me as they adjusted in the dark. God damn, Blount says after the flies clear out and the jackal's howling dies back down. Scorpions in our house, hornets as big as crawdads, screaming jackals, and giant porcupines. Blount's a tall, goofy motherfucker, and I don't know him very well yet. Someone in the platoon told me his grandfather owns a chain of grocery stores in the South, but I haven't asked him about that. He whistles a weird cat call to himself, and I know I'm supposed to tell him not to make noise on duty, but I'm distracted too. I'm just as freaked out as he is. I've never seen shit like that dog before. When I was a kid, my family took our dog to the vet to put her down. There was another dog at the clinic with quills in its muzzle, but they were small. Nothing like the ones tonight. How are we supposed to know there were giant porcupines here? Giant porcupines, I say. Another thing we weren't ready for. We've been in this war almost nine years, and we still don't know what we're doing. We weren't prepared for Kajaki. On our first night here, earlier this week, we carried our gear to an empty house within the walls of Fob Z. The Soviets used it in the 80s. Now it's our turn. We found graffiti all over the walls and scorpions skittering around on the floor. We spent the night clearing all the rooms of scorpions as if we were going door to door, clearing out terrorist strongholds. We brushed the scorpions into a bucket and flung them over the wall in our backyard, sending them down the hill towards the river. No one will miss them. 
This place is crawling with bugs, overflowing with them. The next morning, Blount and Vargas found these big hornets flying laps around the house like they were practicing for an insect Indy 500. Johnson says they might not actually be hornets. Who cares if they're not hornets? I just know I don't want them crawling on me. What's next? Blount says. I look up at him and say, dinosaurs. Because this place feels like prehistoric times compared to our homes in the States, back in a city or in a newly built subdivision next to some cornfields, like where I grew up. The whole place is after you here, not just the Taliban. If it's not some kind of poisonous bite that gets you sent down to Camp Leatherneck on a medevac, then it's the desolation of the land itself, the very ground we're on. You die if you get lost in the desert. We never had anything like this to worry about back home. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, absolutely. What's it like to see your words in print? It is surreal. About to come Um, out. It's it's very surreal. Um, Probably one of the earliest sort of, I don't know, dreams I envisioned as a child was just wondering what this would be like, you know, holding a book that had my name on the front, you know, Mm -hmm. I was um, not really a precocious reader or even an avid reader as a child, but my mother, you know, got us books from the library. Me and me and my sister actually get us books from the library all the time. And um, I assume that's where I first sort of started wondering about that, you know, Mm -hmm. could I do that someday? Um, Mm -hmm. As a grown-up, you know, and <laughs> so seeing seeing the the words, you know, being able to actually hold the bound, you know, I just have the galley here at this stage, but being able to hold this and um, it's it's really surreal. It's also kind of a relief um, after you know three years of grad school and especially that third year of of writing a thesis and kind mm-hmm. of wondering what's next. You know, you have this whole year where you're isolated from your cohort and kind of from everybody uh you're not you know I mean in my case I wasn't teaching um I wasn't taking classes you know and was very removed and so it's it's just very validating after after all these these uh stages of my life with question marks to be able to actually you know see it in print um and hear people's responses to it you know people have a number of people have read at this point and i think beyond my reaction um to seeing the book to seeing the text physically printed it's just really cool to hear the reaction of people who've gotten to interact with that are they as terrified as i was well i don't know what was your terror like how terrified were you on a 10 point scale Oh, I think, you know, I think it's like, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about this, but I think speculative fiction can be hit or miss mm-hmm. because it's like, it's like a personal thing in a, in a way, like what scares you and what doesn't, or like what that thing is that like, like really terrifies you. And it, sometimes it's yeah. a really, a really small thing yeah. that hooks you. Um, and, and for me, this did it for me. Um, you know, I was joking, telling you earlier that I'm down here in my basement waiting for you for your audio to start working. Mm-hmm. And I was started to get really scared. <laughs> well, I think uh, like terror is very, is more specific 
um and we give it credit for it like right. we are very uh it seems that we are very preoccupied with uh um horror mm-hmm. as a genre and like um and my understanding is if you're horrified by something you're reacting to something already that's something that's already happened uh, but with terror it's much more of you are in the wind up stage of like anticipating something and so the better your imagination is um probably the worse it is i guess when it comes to you know something that's denotatively terrifying mm-hmm. which is sort of built on not revealing something i guess where horror is about sort of giving up the game and getting you to react to something that's happening mm-hmm. i think there's something about um the way that you play with perception as well in this novel because a lot of it is um grunt work you know they're there to do grunt work and they're there to wait and they're bored and they're literally living in the moment you know like people always talk about yeah. living in the moment it's it's excruciating to live in the moment and they they saying, are yeah. and um and the, the way that time moves you start to to stop trusting it um at least i did as a reader and and i you know mm-hmm. i think they did too um and and you really play with that as the novel goes on until you know until it really comes to a head you know late in the book um and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. How, how, you know, how were you thinking of perception? How were you thinking of time, you know, as you were, as you were writing this? That's a really good question. Um, I think those are very separate. I mean, I think of uh, perception. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, that, that question is really drawing me back to, uh, you know, Henry James, the turn of the screw. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think among the among the uh, you know the works of art that influenced me to write this book, uh, the turn of the screw was very paramount, and just that there was you know all things about perception. It's very ambiguous. There's always a question of uh, you know whether no, actually, if that's in first person, um, you have the governess. And you're always questioning whether the governess is perceiving something that's actually happening, mm-hmm. or whether she is, um, you know, overtaken by her own um, mind. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I think I was just very influenced by by that. I was assigned that in college. Um, before I wrote, uh, you know, even the earliest uh, draft of the Militia House, and I was just thinking <laughs> ahead to that, I, I guess, you know, what, by the time I had been assigned to turn this group, I had been in Kajaki, and I, I had uh, I had actually been to the real Militia House, and, and et cetera, and so... Wait, there's a real Militia House? <laughs> yes, yes, there is. What? Actually, um yes. Where a yeah. bunch of Af- Afghanistan soldiers killed a bunch of Russians? Uh, well, the they wouldn't you you wouldn't say um, you know Afghanistan soldiers um, at that time. Um, you know, during the occupation by the Soviets, 
uh, we would we would be talking about the Mujahideen um, who weren't really like government, you know, right. regular mm-hmm. soldiers. However, they were funded. They were given a lot of money uh, by the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, this um, <laughs> the militia house um, is is actually a real place. Did you go it, in it? Did you actually go inside? Oh my god! So what was that like? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was, I, I, uh, I didn't take pictures of the inside. I have, um, just a couple pictures of the outside of it. Uh, the inside is, I think kind of similar to, you know, what I describe in the book, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe somewhat less exaggerated, but, um, I don't know. It was just a very, and, you know, it really was outside of the base. It was when I was there, at least, you know, in 2010, it was it was a very neglected building. I don't know if they ever found a use for it afterwards, but it was full of garbage and, you know, animals certainly lived in there. And and um, actually, you know, there um, I don't remember. There may have been some porcupine quills in there. What? <laughs> it no. was it was full of trash. I promise you, it was it was. Uh, and you know, we were told, um, you know, this this rumor about it, and of course, you know, it was the reason for us wanting to go in there, and kind of similar to the book, you know, the subject, the subject position of the narrator of the books. A lot different from mine, but I did have a similar mentality hearing this, thinking like, oh, okay, that's a bunch of BS. And uh, when we did go in there, um, you know, the inside of the building was riddled with uh, uh, bullet holes. Did you yeah. see basement stairs and then they were gone? No, no, oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, thank God. <laughs> I don't have uh, I don't have nightmares about anything like that. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but it was enough to plant a seed. Yeah, it was um it was just a very impressionable place. Um uh, my time in Afghanistan. Um you know, before I arrived in Kajaki, um it was pretty, I don't know, it, it was, there was just a routine about it uh, you, that you would get used to. Uh, my first base, we were 12 hour shifts, just nonstop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of the same at the second place, just constantly working. Um, and when we got to Kajaki, it was suddenly this, ironically, late in the deployment where we were able to process things because we actually sort of had some downtime and you know when we were busy we were busy but when we weren't there was just it was a much more interesting place mm-hmm. the other places if we had downtime it was you just stayed in your stayed on your cot you know you watched movies on your laptop <laughs> at this space if you had some downtime it, it was interesting to kind of walk around and uh, look at things look across the river you know actually vegetation and um you know we were still on base there weren't people necessarily there to interact with but it was just very unique up to that point 
did you write about your experience, um, you know, in your fiction before you started writing this novel? You yeah, know, your experience as, mm-hmm. as a Marine? Okay. Yes. Um, when did you know you wanted to explore it in a longer format? Uh, that's such a good question. I mean, I, um, I don't know. I've most of my life, I have always been interested in making things and telling specifically telling stories, whether it's writing or drawing pictures or making movies. And so um, I think, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as a result of being in the Marines that I wanted to explore. This is more so my identity before as a person who was always making art and whatever. And mm-hmm. when I got in the Marines, I think it was like, okay, um, this is insane. <laughs> <laughs> I've already been making art about random things that have influenced me and this is obviously very, very obviously going to make its way there, you know, to the surface of whatever it is I'm making. And um, I think uh, when I got out, you know, I mean, even when I was enlisted, I I wrote to a certain degree, um, you know, I wrote some short stories on this website this website called writing.com where you can make an account and participate in daily contests, stuff like that. So did you win any? Uh, I did. I, I won. <gasps> it's really, this is a good story. I, I won, um, I won like a, a horror story thing. It was, I can't remember. This is so long ago. I, I, I won it. And then I was super proud of myself and I even got this like black, um, like this badge that went with it. It's kind of ominous looking and and I wasn't very active with that site after that I got busier especially once I got my xbox uh, started playing <laughs> xbox and barracks stopped writing and then uh, you that know, happens really to every writer of course I was really proud of the story and then I I submitted it to um creepy pasta oh my god I was ago. just reading about creepy pasta so I submitted to creepy pasta and then they had a checkbox and there's in like their submission portal. It was like, check this box. If I don't remember how it's worded, it's like, if we reject this and you're okay with this being a crappy pasta, check this box. It's like, okay, submitted it. They rejected it. And this story was on crappy pasta. What? <laughs> the one that I, the, yes, the story that I won the, the writing.com, the writing.com uh, contest. Um, it was on crappy pasta. However, it's not anymore. It was like bought out by someone and it used to be fun to share that. It's oh not there. My it was gosh. like a fun comment section behind it. People were like, oh, this isn't, this is kind of scary. And people were like, oh, this is dumb. <laughs> I'm just reading about creepypasta because um, <laughs> I'm reading the book about Slenderman. Yes. yes. Um, That's kind of what put them on the map, right? And exactly. Yeah. And that, if that wouldn't happen. I think my story would still be a crappy. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that author's coming on the pod in a few weeks. And so I'm reading her book about Slenderman. And uh I didn't even know That's I had awesome. never heard of creepypasta, but look at you. <laughs> Writing.com and yeah. crappy pasta. That's mid-career, you know. I was published before that, but it doesn't matter. It's Amazing. <laughs> well, did you start writing this novel in grad school? I did. I I um my very first um submission for grad school was actually a short story version of this uh for workshop it, it was not with uh Roxanne Gay actually it was just it was with my first um uh workshop instructor Sharon Solwitz 
Mm. And it was a short story that was in epistolary form and kind of these short little journal entries. And I had this idea of this, it's like thought about the, you know, thought about the actual militia house and I'm headed to grad school. I was like, well, this is pretty obvious, pretty obviously good idea, you know, <laughs> just proverbial good idea that, you know, it's something <laughs> that I haven't read exactly. Right. I mean, there is the Jacob's, uh, ladder what is it tim robbins you know mm-hmm. comes back from vietnam and i've never actually seen that by the way um and you know i had read some some other um you know i read phil Klein and such and i thought uh in grad school i didn't want to overload my cohort with just military stuff um but you know <laughs> my very first piece was exactly that and um, I got some, some good feedback, some, you know, good feedback and it kind of seemed like it wasn't, it seemed like it was really going to be a short story or I was, or at least didn't seem like I'd be able to encompass everything that I wanted to put in there. Mm. Um, and I, I took another class actually later that year, kind of rewrote, <laughs> plagiarized myself and kind of rewrote <laughs> the same thing, not a workshop. Uh, it was a lit class and, um, you know, then there was like a whole year in that semester. I actually was working with, uh, with Roxanne in her, um, in her workshop, but I was working on a different project. So when it came time to work with her on a thesis, I was kind of lost. I just thought this was like the best, this made the most sense in terms of fleshing something out. I didn't want to just do a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to write a new thing and do a novel for my thesis and then, I want to know like how you kept it going from mm-hmm. there. You know, how did you keep, especially I feel like, and sure. I'm putting my, I'm putting my own personal um, issues here when I ask, you know, I think especially with like a, spe- a speculative fiction, um, I feel like I would be gassed out. <laughs> so how did you keep yourself like engaged and how did you yeah. keep yourself going until it was finished? That's a good question. Cause I don't really write a lot. Excuse me. I don't really write like a lot of horror. I don't really write tons of speculative things. I tend to see mostly what I do as like absurd and surreal stuff. Mm. But with this, I thought more of like the conventions, you know, of a, of a gothic haunted house thing or like a, a war novel or something. Um, part of the way I guess I kept myself going was sort of, um, you know, the uh, like. I think maybe the change in in uh in form you know mm-hmm. as i said first we, we were in those two different short story um those the, that short story mode and two different ones too it wasn't i really didn't revise that first one for that second class mm. pretty much rewrote the whole thing <laughs> if i remember right um and you know that was just there, there was a whole year between um, that incarnation of it and then the beginning of my thesis. And so I think when it came time uh, to write my thesis, um, you know, I had done a bunch of different stuff. I was always trying, in grad school, I was always trying not to write about the military. Yeah. I look back on that, it's like, I actually really should have just gotten it all out of my system. I really should have just overloaded my cohort you know I I think I think that's I think that's a common thing I think we all kind of come to grad school and and think to ourselves like oh this thing that I really want to do or that I keep turning to is lame 
And like, mm-hmm. I've got to push myself in a different direction mm-hmm. because like, you know, yeah. like I, people are reading, you know, whatever satire right now. And yeah. I need to do that. And you and- know, I came, I came straight to, to, MF, to the MFA from college. And I think part of why I thought that was because in college, I, I wrote, you know, I, I didn't write a lot about the military, but it was like similar to grad school. You know, I would try to drop in one piece per workshop and every time my classmates were like, well, I don't know anything about the military. So <laughs> what I'm about to say is meaningless, but here's my feedback. And so <laughs> then I got to the military, then I got to grad school and grad school classmates still kind of had that same um Kind of feedback but i but i should have kept doing you know I, I should have kept pushing and you know it's like the, to answer your original question about like how did i keep going i i think i just i think i just tried to see the project as like a different project at every every turn you know um working on it um as a short story and then you know doing the the draft for my thesis um which is a way, you know, for, for the book that's, you know, going to be in people's hands, there's almost no resemblance to the thesis draft. It's been completely rewritten. So to sustain this, I've actually kind of just changed it a lot. Wow. I, think. I've, I haven't really worked with the same exact thing. I've changed a lot um, in various ways. You know, some people may be able to um, work on the same thing, at all these stages, but I think I had to keep myself entertained um, somehow, you know, in order to envision the reader being entertained by mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really, I think that's just important, you know, like, I think that's, that's the way to get through is to think like, you know, am I boring myself if I'm bored, you sure. know, <laughs> like, yeah, for this book, I had to scare myself. Yes. I think, you know, the scary stuff. It had to scare me or else, you know. Yeah. When did you know it was finished? When did you know you had a draft? Oh, gosh. Um, Or how? Well, I don't know. I mean, because this was obligatory for (laughs) for grad school. um, Originally, it was mostly, you know, working with with Roxanne Gay. You know, she was my thesis advisor. um, And her feedback was just you just can't substitute it um and i think i trusted her a lot you know she worked with me the whole year Substitu- what did she through. what did she mean by substitute it no i'm i'm just saying like there's no i i'm saying there's no substitute for working with her oh 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 you know, okay. it was just a great experience and you know if there was a point as a grad student where I felt this is done. It's it was because of her. This is because we worked together and because she constantly had very good questions for me. She held me accountable for, for what I was writing. Um, but she was also a cheerleader. And um by the time I got to the thesis defense, I felt nervous, but I felt excited, you know. Wow. I felt ready to, you know, some of my friends told me you should think of this as like the first literary interview you ever have. Or they, or they told me, you know, think of this as just an extremely in-depth conversation, you know, about the first book you've ever written. Because um, of Roxanne, I, I was very, I felt very ready for that, you know. And after that, um, you know, she she was very instrumental in helping me get an agent. And 
Um, when once I got an agent, I rewrote the entire book. <laughs> so was that based <laughs> on what your agent was? Was that based on like edits your agent was giving you? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my agent, Julia Cardin is, is a genius. She, she was extremely generous. Um, you know, I, agents really don't want to be editors, you know, they want a product, you know, they want something that they can, um, hand out to editors. Mm-hmm. But I think because of Roxanne's, you know, really just very favorable words about working with me, um, Julia was, was excited to take the project on and, and uh, I think she trusted me and, and, you know, I rewrote the, rewrote the whole book. She had great feedback and, uh, you know, I'm, I should backspace and, you know, your, your question about what did I know the book was done? It was certainly not when I turned my thesis in, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was definitely, um, you know, more so like when, uh, my agent, um, shops the book around, that was when I started really feeling good. You know, I felt good about the work I had done, but I felt like, you know, I felt good about the work I had done between me and my fact, you know, me and my instructors rather than feeling good about what I had done between me and my readers, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. What kinds of things was your agent asking you to change or edit? The original um, draft of this book was um, fully epistolary. Oh, wow. Um, The the short story originally was, was like that um, as well. And, um, so my thesis was very, very sloppy, you know, um, but the character wasn't a writer or an academic. So this is kind of a defensive thing for me to do too. I never written a novel. I was like, I'm going to write a novel and, and, and it's okay if it's bad. Right. It's like this, you know, some, someone who's enlisted in the Marines, who's, you know, not a writer writes a book length, you know, journal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, there were, you know, a number of agents who I sent the manuscript to, and um, the, the the agents who declined me rather than just not answering were actually very, um, I thought, helpful in in the ways they were direct, you know, to say like this this is creepy and it's interesting, but this form is not very urgent, you know, and you know they're not wrong. <laughs> That's true. If it's if if the book is like a meta text, you know, it's it's an artifact that's already been written and mm-hmm. it's already happened. Sure. And there there are I think there are ways you can you can make that feel urgent. I think annihilation is like the is my favorite contemporary example of it, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, that book is horrifying. In, indeed, right? And I and mine was not my uh, my thesis was not. And so my agent and and the the other agents, you know, who, who turned me down, they were all right. You know, it was it needed to be rewritten. It needed to be more urgent. It, it was too far removed from um, the stuff that was actually scary. You know, mm. and also mm-hmm. someone writing a journal. It's like ah, I struggle. I need to know. Um, you know, I, I really need to believe <laughs> that someone either really wants to be writing a journal or they need to be writing a journal. I love epistolary fiction. I would love to come back to this, but it needs to really work for me to like buy in. And so even I wasn't buying in and 
I think um, rewriting the book was very <laughs> difficult. I, I, I had a, a fourth year <laughs> of my MFA essentially with my agent, <laughs> but um, you know, it was, I'm, I'm really happy about that. And at least we continued on with my editor too. I guess I had a fifth year. <laughs> with my editor <laughs> it just never ends. <laughs> <laughs> When I think of like a um, an ending to a book like this, it's, you know, often it's kind of like finding a way out that doesn't necessarily satisfy, but it keeps a reader thinking, guessing, um, bought in, you know? Um, and I feel like you really did that. I feel like you were very successful at um, at the ending to this book because, you know, I, I can't not, I can't read a book and not be thinking to myself like, oh man, how did, you know, how did the writer do this and what's the writer going to do next? And, you know, like, what are they, you know, what tactics are they using? And, you know, um, that's just how I read books. And, and I, um, I was very moved by the ending and, and I just, I thought it was so successful. And I, was it always, you know, like, was that always where it was going to end with that not to spoil it, but um, <laughs> that kind of ending, I guess I should say. Well, no. Um, the first ending, um, I mean, when I first started writing, well, you know, the entire process of writing this um, took place, I think, jeez, um, we really weren't too far off uh, of the end of the war. Mm. when um, I think the final draft this was turning in. I mean, most of the process of it, the war in Afghanistan was still going on. So um, I think the, the ambiguity sort of stems off of that, off of, you know, not really knowing how it was going to end. Um and you know it's kind of ironic, I guess, that earlier um, incarnations of the of this ending were very pessimistic. Really? I mean, yeah. I, I the short story, um, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I've you know I've obviously got it saved. <laughs> I don't burn my old writing or anything. I know I have it in a file or something. But if I remember right, I think it was more. It was more of. Um, you know, like the narrator sort of you know, doesn't really make it out. It's kind of swallowed up, and and the ending now is is more hopeful. It's really ambiguous, but I I, I think of it as very hopeful. I do too. I really do. I think that ambiguity. I'm glad you said that, by the way. Thank you for saying that. Um, or thank you for you know, thank you for reading that because that is intended and. Um, you know, the, the ambiguity, um, I, I don't know, my take on that is, is that it, it just comes from, you know, most of this, most of the time spent on this project, mm-hmm. it was happening in an ambiguous period where, you know, <laughs> I don't know if any of us really thought we were going to win mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, but we at least the ending wasn't written at that point, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the final words are not to give anything away. And if, you know, 
feel free to fast forward anyone who's listening and doesn't want to hear this, but the final words are, if I try, the door is right in front of me. And to me that, yes, it's about the war, but it's also about the character and the, and the mm-hmm. struggle that the character has all throughout the book. Um, You know, even in the very first pages, the character is like, I'm not a very, you know, I'm not here yeah. to like save any, anything, you know? <laughs> um, But the, this final moment, and it really is a moment there's this grace and this understanding that comes through, um, you know, the character has fought this, this battle with this thing that we don't truly understand, but, you know, is definitely related to deployment and, you know, everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the death of his brother and et cetera, et cetera. And um, it, it feels like, it feels like some kind of hope is glinting through and i don't you know i don't mean to say that that that's what makes a successful ending for me or a satisfying ending for me but it was satisfying for this character and for this story arc yeah i mean sorry go ahead no no you go i mean i was just gonna say i guess my take on it which was not my original take it wasn't i kind of learned about the ending as i Hmm. worked on this Mm-hmm. I didn't really have the same ending vision um, when I first started this in the fall of 2016, you know, versus working on it uh, last year. And I guess I just sort of thought of 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 the character's place in this narrative, and, and the ending is like if if this if this narrator is, you know if we have to decide about him being a good person or a bad person or something, I, that just didn't seem the point to me. The point to me seemed to be like his choice about looking back, you know, or not his choice. It's just looking back on the choices that he could have made and the choice, you know, that he can make. Mm-hmm. I was sort of seeing that as a microcosm of, of our involvement in Afghanistan, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the militia house being this force beckoning people kind of for no reason, you know, which sort of was how the whole thing amounted to. You know, we say we had reasons for going there, but I mean, after a certain point, we were there for a long time for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we didn't make the choices that we were supposed to make. That was the way I viewed it. You know, if readers don't, see that i think that's okay i think i'm cool with this just being a scary novel but if it is you know if people are scared by it then great but you know i guess that's my parallel there Mm -hmm. the scary um parallel to the terror and horror is choices that we stare in the face and we just don't make them (laughs) you know i think you're also touching on um this dedication to viewing troops in this exalted light um i mean there's like multiple times in the book where like this character is dragging people who walk up and say thank you for your service um you know i i think i mean it's all there it's um the way the character uh and there's other reasons for this but the way the character doesn't feel comfortable at home you know um Mm -hmm the you know just just the the way that time moves differently um 
even from location to location. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's all there. Um, I really want to hear how you were able to locate this book in, in a time period that I didn't even know I was nostalgic for, but I am 2010, <laughs> which isn't that long ago. It's really not that long ago, but it, but when, you know, you're talking about like the Nicki Minaj CD and, and, you know, um, poignantly this, this soldier had never <laughs> heard any Nicki Minaj, had no idea who Nicki Minaj was. And, yeah. you know, um, tries to find the Nicki Minaj CD and doesn't even get to hear the Nicki Minaj music. But, um, you yeah, know, how did you, <laughs> he doesn't. And I, I thought that was so like, so funny, but also no, just, funny. just like an, another way that, that he's removed from mm-hmm. everything really. Um, but you know, how did you get yourself back to 2010? You know, like, were you, <laughs> were you listening to Nicki Minaj? Like, what were you doing to get yourself there? Well, I mean, um, not to be melodramatic, it's in some ways it's sort of like the a narrator. Like I've never really left. It's the you know the the scenario um, of my own deployment um, in 2010. It's like it's just unforgettable. It's I, I personally um, just kind of have, have a uncannily good memory too. Um, oh, a really wow. good, just long-term memory. Um, Does that feel like a blessing or a curse? Both, both, wow. you know, mm-hmm. uh, you remember stuff by yourself. You don't want to remember, but then you mm-hmm. remember all kinds of other stuff that other people try to deny. And you're like, no, <laughs> nothing. You know, I might've only been 10 years old, but no, that's, that's real. Oh my god. Um yeah, I think going back to that time um um I didn't I didn't have a uh you know I, I got out of the Marine Corps in 2012. I started um in college in the fall of 2012. Very very um short break there in the summer mm-hmm. and then I was immediately in school again and and um it wasn't so much that I had to get myself back to this time. It was like, I have written about it, uh, you know, just for years. And, you know, in college, I couldn't really, na- I couldn't really nail it. It was, I tried, but it was too, I was too close to it. And so a lot of what I, a lot of what I wrote kind of boiled down to these sort of uh, venting sessions or these rants I was just really mad about everything and um I think maybe I had to get that on my system by the time I got to grad school I was more self-aware of just how to write mm-hmm. and maybe more self-aware of my own thoughts on the whole you know my background in that and finding a better way of articulating it and I always held on to Nicki Minaj though, because, you know, um, if you, I don't really know if this permeates, this doesn't really permeate novels as much, but if you know, if you watch war movies, um, especially Vietnam, you know, American um, movies about Vietnam, it's, it's all ingrained in the music of that era. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. You know, uh, they mm-hmm. they kind of they touch on that in Jarhead, the the movie Jarhead, which there's a lot of BS in that movie. It's not a bad movie. There's a lot of BS in it, but they do touch on the music. They try to get the music right. Um, and for for us, um, we went overseas in January of 2010. I mean, maybe there are other people <laughs> who are cooler than me who like knew it was who knew music but i had never ever ever heard of Nicki minaj mm-hmm. and when you were young in the marines it's pretty hard for pop music for popular stuff to get by you you know the marine corps and the enlisted side is the youngest um on average the youngest part of the military overall so everyone is very obsessed with whatever is popular and trendy um so i swear Nicki minaj became popular between January and August of 2010. And I believe you. It was, I mean, this is in the novel, but it was, you know, at some point I found some British magazine and there are these different magazines, you know, like in the US you have Maxim or whatever. Mm-hmm. And magazines. And then the British, there's these other ones. And I remember paging through them and like Nicki Minaj, and I'm like, who is that? I don't, I don't know. And then, of course, when the artillery dudes showed up at our base, it's just like in the novel, you know, they're all chanting her lyrics mm-hmm. like a prayer, and R- everyone R- knew Roger that. Exactly right, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> of course, they had been in the U.S. after we left, so they were aware of the pop culture situation, and we were kind of just at the behest of. Our internet access, you know, we which was terrible. Sparse, you know, it is over exaggerated. I'll say in this book, it's over exaggerated. We did have more internet kajaki than in this novel. Okay, kind of a plot device for the characters to not have much internet. It made it a little bit easier for, for me to make them like struggle, you know, in that sense. Yeah, the the contrast between the gear and the stuff that the British soldiers have versus what the American right. soldiers have is so wild. Was that exaggerated? Um, yeah, I mean, when we, when I showed up in Kajaki, um, we were the first Americans, um, in my job, you know, in my, in my logistics job to go there. Um, they did have, now I want to say they had computers, they had internet, but, um, their operation was much more sparse. I mean, they, they had some army people who were taking over the, the landing zone and handling all the cargo and everything. But it, I think this is an anomaly, you know, like we, we did have to bring in, you know, our own computers and, and such mm-hmm. um, to set up like the network. And at this particular base, you know, it's not like I was involved in it. <laughs> that wasn't my job, but I mean, I, I can tell you for sure it was not was not like a like snap your fingers and make it happen type thing. I'm sure there was like lots of collaboration and just like making sure like the power um was like compatible, you know, with being able to like plug in their, you know, computers and everything. Well, do you think that you might still need to write some more about the military or have you, are you still writing about military or are you moving on to other things for now? I do have, um, uh, a collection that I'm working on that 
I don't quite know how to label it. You know, it doesn't feel fair to call it like a repository of all the other military writing I've done because a lot of it actually was done before I wrote any version of the Militia House. Mm. Um, and I think the Militia House is a very specific story and I have a lot of other narratives about being in the Marines that are just so absurd and ridiculous that, um, I mean, I just think it's worth telling them because if I don't, not really sure anyone else will. And mm-hmm. taxes are paying for it. Mm-hmm. People should probably know. I mean, you know, um, but, you know, I I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be my life's work. Um, I, I've got all kinds of other things I would love to write. And on my website, you know, there's, my website is, I guess it's sort of a, it's a portfolio, you know, like a professional portfolio, more or less. And I would say the, probably the majority of the, the short fiction that's linked on there is, is not like military related. It's just. Yeah. I took a spin. Um, oh, I, kinda, really? <laughs> I did. I did. And I kind of want to, oh, no. um, I just want to read some of your titles so that people know mm. how great you are at titles. <laughs> okay. Oh, Trumpet tits. I'm going to keep going space yacht cookout <laughs> um, parade the beef yes. uh, salt Peter episode of hate channeled near ice cream truck at Mojave Vi- Mojave Viper <laughs> Scott Bakula <laughs> <laughs> uh, the oldest soul at a college barn dance and the last one I'll read is Hyundai Sonata. So please, uh, everyone go to John Milas' website because <laughs> like he's saying- I love titles. It, I, I do, I, I do um, um, you know, consciously try to think about titles. Sorry, you were about to say something. No, I would just want to encourage everyone to go because it's like you're saying, it is your portfolio. There's tons of good shit there. I started reading Trumpet Tits. I started reading, um, actually, I read Hyundai Sonata, which is incredible. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. Oh yeah. And so I think, you know, people would have a really good time um, at, while they're waiting for the militia house to come out, which when does it come out? July 11th, you know, um, July 11th. Okay. Read the, read the work on my, on my website and then make sure to remind yourself that the militia house is way different. <laughs> so it's, exactly. I don't really write horror, you know, it's, it's cool to have this. I love work. I'm a big horror fan. Um, mostly of our movies, but you What's know, your favorite? I guess if you, gosh, Aliens uh, is my favorite movie of all time. You know, wow. I mean, if I had to just pick a pure horror movie, I would probably have to go with The Shining. Oh. But I think Aliens is still horrific enough and and scary enough. Is Aliens the sequel to Aliens? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they okay. got really creative. They call it Aliens. I do kind of. <laughs> I, I I I admire that. Yeah. Like now, there's more. <laughs> Oh well, this is James Cameron uh, written and directed. So it's kind of a signal of his early, his ego. He was like, you know what? I, we're just going to call this aliens. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's incredible. Um, if you had to recommend three books, what would you recommend? Well, I'm going to go ahead and look at my acknowledgements. Um Okay. I want to I want to recommend uh, some of the books 
that influenced me to write the militia house yes um and go with the to me the the biggest and most obvious one is is going to be house of leaves by mark you know, danielewski yeah yeah that's such a good book uh, i keep meeting people who haven't read it and um i haven't read it i know it's huge oh, you just got to read it you know there's there will be 10 page chapters that'll take you three hours to read and 50 page chapters that'll take you 10 minutes to read interesting and in the midst of that it is just a really um just affecting you know it's scary but it's just so heartbreaking and, and moving very very good has novel. he written anything i mean people always talk Don't about how of... yes okay so are are is that stuff as good have you read it i haven't read it <laughs> he just wrote this I'm iconic wondering. thing yeah i mean like he, he wrote he did the thing that every writer dreams of doing which is to write the book that everyone's yes. like you have to read this yes my so my uh my reading habits um my friend diana clark like she's a lot different than me she'll find a writer and she'll read everything that person's ever come up with mm-hmm. and my thing is more like book to book like i'll i'll learn of a book and I'll read the book based on, you know, just learning about that book. And I mean, if it's really good, then I'll investigate more. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, even if I like it a lot, I'll tend to just sort of, hey, good, good stuff. I don't know. I it's I don't know if that means I'm a bad reader or a bad fan or what. I, uh, I, tend I think to all that matters, all that matters is that you're reading. Yes. yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's it. And on that note, my next book to recommend <laughs> would be The Grip of It by Jack Jones. Oh my gosh, I almost yes. brought that up. That yes. So that's an example. I was talking about how sometimes in these kinds of books, it can be a very small thing that t- like ends up getting me completely bought in and terrified. And, what, and I was thinking of in her book when someone... I can't remember. I think it it might be the wife. I've read this book so long ago who puts a plate down, turns around, and then she turns back around and the plate is gone. Mm, Yes. All kinds of. There's so many moments like that. And there's moments like that in your novel as well. And I'm so glad you brought up the grip. of Those things. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. the the short chapters and those kinds of, I mean, there's, you know, drawings on the wall and things. There's lots of influences um, that I drew from that. I mean, I think, um, as a, as a haunted house influence, the good of it might be the most, one of the most contemporary ones mm-hmm. I read. Um, it was a really good, great book. I mean, I read, I actually read that twice in terms of. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, I read that once in grad school, I think. And then I read it when I was re, uh, writing this in the, in the, you know, first person mode later, but yeah, wow. you got to read it, the grip of it. Um it's a great, great book. And again, I, uh, I need to read, um, Jem's other work. <laughs> oh, she's amazing. Another example of someone who I like it, when I was, you know, reading for the militia house and coming up with a, a list of books to sort of give to Roxanne Gay, um, to show her that I had a reading list to, to write my thesis I was coming up with haunted house novels and such. And one of the things that I learned was like a lot of people who write these haunted house novels, that's sort of like a one-off thing in their yeah. career as just a literary writer. And I was really fascinated with that. I was like, I don't, totally. I, I don't have to be a. Just uh, a speculative a horror guy. I can yeah. Just do it. I can just do it. I can just try it and, and do it and have a reason for it. And like, um, that, a lot of my influences came from that rather than just pure, like Stephen King, for instance, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. shining wasn't really. Um, I, and then the, the third book I recommend, this is out of print. Um, but you can find, uh, you can like check out a, a scanned copy in the Internet Archive 
But I have, I, you know, I'd be remiss if I did not recommend the short timers by Gustav Hasford, which is just, um, it's, it's the, it's the, the novel that, uh, Stanley Kubrick adapted to make Full Metal Jacket. Oh my gosh. Wow. I did I not think, know that. Yes. Right. It's, he's pretty good at that at making his movies, um, bigger than the books, you know, better than the source material. And I gotta say, I think, I was sort of skeptical um, going in, you know, Full Metal Jacket, great, great movie, lots of very iconic performances and and whatever, but um, the novel makes the movie feel like tap water in comparison. I mean, the novel is just so, and the novel is uh, the first edition of it. It's 155 pages, something like that. I think the version you can get on your internet archive is it's under 200 um very quick and just it w- it was a starred Kirkus review actually when it came out but I'm my theory is it was overshadowed maybe by uh Tim O'Brien's book um going wow. after Cacciato which won the National Book Award I think mm-hmm. uh that mm-hmm. year or the year later mm-hmm. so the short timers check it out it's it's not everyone's gonna like it but it is I think the um you know Marine Corps novel about Vietnam, you know, and Tim O'Brien's great, great writer, very, very um, not easy to read, but just kind of very good writing. And I don't know, the short timers isn't bad writing, but it's just very rough. It, it'll mm. push your buttons. It will bite you. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Bite you. Oh, I love that. Well, okay. So I think everyone should read those and they should go to um, johnmilas.com and look at your other writing. And <laughs> from you. there, it's just a short little click on the left side to the militia house where you can find <laughs> you can find a link to pre-order it. Um, it it's such a great book. It it's Thank you so much. For I know that, that I, I focused a lot on the, you know, the speculative aspect of it because it is a very scary, terrifying book, but it's, it's also much more than that. It's, um, it's so poignant. It's so funny. Um, it's really oh, thank un- you. unlike it's funny. <laughs> I know. Isn't that a relief? I love when people tell me that because it's like, okay. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Um, no, I just, I had the best time reading it. And like I said, the ending, um, you really stuck the ending. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so, I'm so uh, excited for you and excited about this book and so glad that you came on to talk to me about it. Thank you for having me and for reading it. I mean, this is it is awesome to be here. <laughs> I'm a fan of this podcast, so being a, being a part of it is a, a huge privilege, even an honor. And likewise for me, John. Everyone go pre-order The Militia House. <laughs> <laughs>